the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does happen. AM 1420, WBSL presents Spooky South Ghost with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here along with the silent assassin Matt Costa, science advisor. Matt Moniz is not here tonight because he is at that fundraiser uh, that we talked about last week with Donald LaCroix. And uh, he will be there having some fun tonight. So we're not we're not making him work. We're not going to make him call into the show. But he'll give us a report of everything that's going on uh, with that particular case next week. And we'll have more information if anybody wants to make any kind of donations or anything to Tony, uh, Donald LaCroix's neighbor, who is facing some immigration issues. So, uh, But that doesn't mean that we're not going to have a great time here tonight. We're going to have a spectacular time, a spooktacular time, because we're going to be talking with Michael Clarkson about poltergeists in Hour 1. Now, this is a topic that I've always wanted to talk about on the show, and we really haven't found uh, the right guest who can talk with us at length about this. We've talked with John Zaffis about it, of course. Uh, but uh, Michael Clarkson is the author of a new book called The Poltergeist Phenomenon, an in-depth investigation into floating beds, smashing glass, and other unexplained disturbances. And I, one of the things we'll talk about with Michael is one of the reasons why uh, there isn't anybody anymore who is uh, purely a poltergeist researcher, uh, like in the days of William Roll and, and J.B. Ryan and, and some of the forefathers of that movement. So we'll get into all that in the first hour. And then in the second hour, we're going to talk Spiricom, with uh, old friend Jeff Belanger will be with us as long, uh, alongside Bill Chappell, the inventor of such devices as the Ovilus and the Paranormal Puck. And he's worked out a new Spiricom, which will be debuting at our Dead of Winter event coming up on February 26th at the Lizzie Boyd and Bed and Breakfast in Fall River. Tickets are still available. There's only a few left. Ghostvillage.com black, uh, backslash Lizzie, L-I-Z-Z-I-E. Ghostvillage.com backslash Lizzie. If you want to get some of those few remaining tickets, uh, we'll talk about that coming up in the second hour. Uh, but for now, let's get into it with Michael Clarkson. He is a nonfiction author and professional speaker who has spent 37 years as a print journalist, winning numerous awards for his investigative pieces, including the Canadian National Newspaper Award on two occasions. He was a finalist for the U.S. Healthcare Award in 1995 for his investigation on prescription drug abuse in Alberta, Canada. And as a police reporter, he was twice nominated for the uh, Michener Award for Public Service in Canada, and in 1980 he was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize for his story about reclusive author J.D. Salinger, whom he met twice in New Hampshire. He's also a sports reporter, uh, kindred soul, interviewing famous athletes such as basketball legend Michael Jordan and golfer Tiger Woods. He's been interested in poltergeist cases for many years, and he's interviewed many witnesses, parapsychologists, and skeptics for his new book, The Poltergeist Phenomenon, an in-depth investigation into floating beds, smashing glass, and other unexplained disturbances. And he joins us now on the phones. Good evening, Michael. How are you? Well, Tim, very good, thank you. It's kind of wintry up here in Canada, but it's that, probably that... Uh American uh, weather coming up from the south. <laughs> it's been terrible here in Massachusetts, except tonight as we were driving in, it's pouring rain and it's thunder and lightning, and it's it's almost springtime weather, so you know maybe the groundhog was right. Sure, okay. Uh, now, it's interesting because uh, this, this is, I think, the first time that we've had the chance here, and uh, you know, now in our sixth year of doing this show, where I've had the chance to talk with somebody else who's a sports re- been a sports reporter. <laughs> and sure. 
And uh, I can tell you that uh, some of the stuff that I've seen in the paranormal does not come close to some of the weirdness I've seen in a professional sports locker room. Tiger Woods, uh, yeah, and Tiger Woods willing to ball into the hole by, with his mind. Yeah, <laughs> and that might be the case as, yeah. as we learn about PK and the poltergeist phenomenon. I, I want to get a little bit into your background, though, Michael, and, and, and some of the things that you investigated that led you into the poltergeist phenomenon because uh, one of the topics that I've studied in the past and I've written about in the past myself is the idea of fear, and that's something that kind of you have a really in-depth background in studying. Yes, a couple of things there. Obviously, fear, I've been studying that for about 22 years off and on, Tim. Um, but I was a police reporter before that for 13 years and uh, studying the underbelly of society. And I've kind of, I'm kind of a skeptical guy, I think, uh, generally. If people, when they're an investigative reporter, they try to sell you things all the time, so you got to be kind of skeptical. But I came across this subject around 1980 when uh, a young man who came to my house who had been the uh, center of a poltergeist activity 10 years earlier, and he told me some things that got me interested. And since then, I've, I've sort of been put on the back burner, this subject, but I've been uh, watching with interest of stories over the years and the newspapers from all around the world. But what really got me interested was the cops were talking about this poltergeist case. The case was in St. Catharines, Ontario, as if it really happened. Now, I don't think there's any real conclusive evidence that poltergeist actually exists. It's hard to... Um, duplicate in the laboratory. However, if we go by witness evidence, which is not the best evidence, we have police officers. In fact, they have 51 police officers in 17 cases over the years who swear they saw something which resembles poltergeist-type activities, such as moving objects, beds raising up off the bedroom floor, believe it or not, refrigerators moving. So uh, that's always been an interest of mine since the cops told me it happened. And cops are very cynical people. Usually mm -hmm. they see everything. They, the last thing they want to do is go back to the cop shop and admit something like this to their colleagues or superiors. So when they talk, I listen. Now, if you want to get into the other part now about my fear background, mm -hmm. um, I think there's it's a many-layered, uh, many-componented uh, <clears throat> subject, poltergeist, I think it's it's hard to get at. It's a rare subject. It doesn't happen very often. And I think there, we can't prove what caused it, but I think there's more than one component. I think fear is one of the larger components in this case. And the 70, 75 cases I uh, reviewed of poltergeist over the years, I, would, I came up with a, a cliche, haunted people. I think uh, they seem to be haunted people rather than haunted houses, in fact, the poltergeist activity seems to center around a young person, most often, who is going through puberty. And he or she is usually quite intelligent. There's usually some sort of repression or frustration of the poltergeist agent by others. This is why I think fear comes into play here. There's usually a high level of stress in the household prior to the start of the poltergeist activity. And you have dramatic events such as unexplained knocking, electrical malfunctions, and movements of objects and furniture. I was going to call my book at one point Psychic Tantrums because I think it would be maybe described as that way because I think there's no other way for these uh, young people, and generally they are young people, not always. I'll talk about a case later on, a woman in her 40s in Canada. But um, most often I think they don't have any other way to express themselves. They're angry, they're frustrated, the level of stress in the household. Uh, quite often they're from a repressed family. They're uh, sort of an old European style mentality of where children are usually to be seen and not heard. Mm -hmm. Now, they don't know how they're moving these things. 
uh, usually subconsciously, but I think there's no other alternative for them but to uh, have this weird manifestation of um, knockings and uh, movements of furniture. I think a part of it is is part of the fight-or-flight system. Now, our fight-or-flight system is really the, the Big Bang effect from um, our fear or our emergency fear system, which I call we all have fight-or-flight hardwired into us from millions of years ago. Now, it's still it's still sort of a caveman response. We still have the response to challenges, even everyday challenges, which the caveman had years ago, and we still res- respond with uh, more power. And uh, when you feel tension in your shoulders, maybe you're talking to your boss or client on the phone, and you have tension in your shoulders, it's simply your fight-or-flight system kicking in, making you tense, giving your, uh, sending more power to your muscles. Now, uh, that's great in the old days when we're faced with uh, things like mastodons, but these days... A lot of our challenges are family-oriented, they're social, they're professional. So we have to learn to adapt this uh, fear response. And there are ways we can, sometimes they're subconscious, perhaps, like the poltergeist agent. It uh, reveals itself in extraordinary focus. I think it's one thing we can almost prove. I talked earlier about Tiger Woods sort of willing the ball into the hole. Athletes and people caught in life-threatening situations talk about things happening in slow motion, I found out this is something called tachypsychia. It's Greek for speed of the mind. It's part of the fight-or-flight system. It doesn't always occur, but most often when somebody is in a life-threatening situation, I think what happens is you don't have more time to move around in time, but the nature gives you the action one frame at a time, so it seems like a video camera on fast-forward where things are happening slowly. But I think it gives you more time to, to react, or at least gives you more room within time to react. Uh, witnesses on the police stand say, no, the action happened in, in real time, but their fight-or-flight system wasn't kicking in. So I've had this uh, occur to me a number of times, getting into the zone. I'm trying to find ways to manipulate my hormones when I get under pressure, changing too much adrenaline into things like dopamine and testosterone. Sometimes it's by anger. Usually when you get anger, Tim, maybe your listeners may agree with this, for a brief moment you seem to be able to focus better. You ever get mad at a driver, cut you off? Mm-hmm. and you, you want to get back, and suddenly you're ma- angry, and it seems like you can act quicker, your, your focus is much sharper. Well, that's, that's part of the fight-or-flight system. Now, there may be quite a leap between what I just mentioned and um, moving objects with your mind, but maybe the link is someone like Jack Nichols or Tiger Woods, maybe part of it, we can't prove this, is that not only do they read the putt well in golf, but maybe they just will the ball into the hole more than other golfers do. Maybe it is a, a type of mind over matter. But that's your long answer, Tim. Um, I believe the cops, when they tend to tell me stories, and I believe there's a, a fear or fight-or-flight component to these uh, haunted people. Well, one of the things that I've always found interesting about Poltergeist case is that it's something that's gone on for centuries, that there's been investigation into it in, uh, for centuries, and it's only been in the latter, I don't know, 50, 60 years where we've started to discuss the idea of people being the center of the of this activity, where before it was considered probably one of the most common types of paranormal phenomena. Uh, yes, I don't want to um, label um, spirit uh, spirits and uh, spirit chasers, but uh, I think in the past generally there may have been more superstition involved. In other words, I don't think we were able to test, we still can't test poltergeist agent properly, but... I think it's a little more scientific than it was, and I'm not saying ghosts don't exist. What I'm saying is in the 75 cases I looked at, there were only a handful of cases which seemed to uh, border on uh, so-called spirit activity. But 
you're right, these, these uh, cases have been reported throughout history and all over the world. And, and I may... I think that that may be one slight piece of evidence that these cases are reported uh, independent of one another, and yet they all seem to have the same uh, dynamics involved. So um, I, I think it's something that's been going on a long time. I can't prove it's been going on a long time. But in the last 50 or 60 years, we've had uh, people, like you mentioned, Ryan, uh, William Rowe, and they've studied it more closely and coming up uh, with some common denominators in these cases, such as, they found, uh, in general, that um, these poltergeist agents or the people who the, around the poltergeist activity centers seem to have unique brains. There's a slightly higher rate of epilepsy and schizophrenia in the uh, poltergeist agents. Now, there was one parapsychologist, and he uh, died a few years ago. His name was Andrew Green of London. He said that some of the agents suffer from a front temporal lobe epilepsy. That's a brain disorder in which people can suffer blackouts lasting from a minute uh, to half an hour. Uh, he uh, theorizes during these blackouts, an unknown power of the mind may be released, which can cause objects to move. Now, these investigators, uh, Roll in particular, have uh, speculated again that not only do these agents have unique brains, but they are tapping into some source of nearby energy. Sometimes it's household electricity. Sometimes it's uh, geomagnetic storms in the area. Sometimes magnetic fields. And sometimes it's actually energy from our own mind-body. We tend to forget that we do have electricity in the beat of the human heart, electrical signals moving up and down your nerve cells. And when you walk across the carpet, your body can pick up or rub off extra electrons and slightly changes your body's electrical potential. Then, of course, Tim, when you touch a doorknob, zap. Mm-hmm. So these are common denominators that have been found in the last um, 50, 60 years by, uh, by researchers. Now, unfortunately... Uh, you also mentioned, yeah, what are we going to do? Because William Rowe is semi-retired. There seems to be no one uh, ready to take up his mantle, and also there seems to be fewer dollars. I'm not sure if there's fewer dollars in, in general paranormal sense available for research, but there's, there seems to be, at least in Poltergeist, some of these um, universities are closing their labs. We had a, a case, um, a PK lab in the Princeton University, where they thought they had some results to show PK existed, but they've closed down. And uh, there seems to be still a lot of skepticism in the mainstream science community. So I think the short-term, um, uh, the short-term look at research is not good right now. But that could change. Um, the paranormal in general seems to be getting a lot, a lot more exposure lately. So that could balance things a little bit. Well, I think part of what will help is as more and more, you know, amateur ghost hunters, the paranormal investigators of today get into the field and get involved in investigation, if they have a better understanding of poltergeist activity and what it could be all about, then we might see a lot more data coming in. Uh, part of the problem, though, is that these paranormal investigators might not be educated on the idea of poltergeist, especially the idea of poltergeist agents, and instead they're just writing it off as, as just regular ghost phenomena. I don't want to say regular because it's yes. you know, such a spectacular thing, but regular ghost phenomena. Yes. Um no, yeah, but they are murky waters, however, because, as I say, there have been a handful of ghost um, similarities, or ghost cases in uh, my 75 cases I reviewed. There's a Virginia psychiatrist, Dr. Ian Stevenson, and he carries some weight. He believes still there's a link between spirits and poltergeist activity, and he sometimes suggests to families that the seance be held to cleanse a home. And then there's others that believe that the poltergeist agent is possessed by a spirit or demon, and they sometimes suggest a type of exorcism to bring the, uh, try to bring the person back to 
himself or herself. So um, I'm not I'm not saying I have proof that they are haunted people, but um, that seems to be the trend among uh, modern researchers. Well, I mean, and you touch upon this in the book, the poltergeist phenomenon, but it, there's certainly a possibility that if there is a poltergeist agent that is the un- unsuspecting cause of this phenomena, that at the same time it wouldn't also open the door for uh, other supernatural phenomena to take place. Yeah, it's possible. Uh, who knows? We just uh, we simply don't know enough. Even though people like William Rowe, there's a chap in England, Stephen Mayer in Manchester, England, uh, Maurice Gross, he's uh, since passed on, Andrew Green I mentioned. And uh, they've been able to uh, go into homes at the latter stages of poltergeist, uh, so-called poltergeist events. But usually the families are, they're the last people called. And poltergeist, the, the cases I reviewed, they only last usually from one to two weeks. Mm-hmm. So unless the investors get in there pretty quickly, these things, the activity seems to tail off. And most often the family families don't want any publicity. They they don't want they feel guilty perhaps maybe they've repressed the, the poltergeist agent and the, that's what's caused this thing, or maybe they simply think that they've got a troubled kid on their hand. Well, they don't want to get into the papers, and most often these cases end up getting into the papers. So um, it's, it's remains a very difficult subject uh, to study, and it's they're also very rare. I think. Um, Poltergeist cases in themselves are rare, and only about 12% of poltergeist cases actually get studied. So you can see some of the the problems we're facing. And and another problem is even when there are legitimate poltergeist cases, uh, I'm thinking along the lines of uh, the Enfield case or Tina Resch, where you're having these legitimate phenomena taking place, but then once that spotlight is shown, the people involved want it to shine a little bit longer even after the phenomena has subsided. Well, you did read my book, didn't you, Tim? Very good. <laughs> Very good points. Yes, I call this the when the circus comes to town syndrome. So within the, within the singular case, you may have instances of legitimate poltergeist activity and also fraud because kids are kids. And when uh, they're under pressure and perhaps the, um, the legitimate uh, RSPK or PK is... Uh, not happening, and there are media in the room, there are parapsychologists in the room, they want to retain attention. They feel they're letting the people down. So, bang, sometimes they kick over a lamp, and sometimes, in the Tina Reich case, it was caught on camera. And so some uh, skeptics, someone like uh, James Randi, will say, aha, you see, I told you, the whole the whole thing was a fake. So the baby is thrown out with the bathwater, and the, that really puts, uh, yeah, that's the stigma, and it, it uh, just puts a wash over all the poltergeist cases, some of which may be legitimate. So it's, um, if I may say one more word about Randy, I've got to, I've got to talk to his uh, president on uh, Tuesday. He's going to interview me. But I think Randy's become um, more of a debunker mm-hmm. and a, a skeptic. And uh, unfortunately, he seems to hold a lot of sway. He's, he's an entertainer. He gets a lot of uh, headlines. So if he says a case like Tina Rice or the case you mentioned in Enfield London is a fraud, then uh, lots of borderline uh, believers, let's put it that way, and mainstream believers, to be sure, are very skeptical, become very cynical. Well, uh, we haven't had the amazing Randy on the program here, and part of the problem with that is, uh, you know, we've been asked by our listeners why we haven't. Part of the problem with it is, is usually our co-host who's with us, our science advisor, Matt Moniz, uh, (laughs) I can just imagine the combative state it would be between him and James Randy. Uh, But that being said, 
there does need to be that other side, that other voice to, to kind of keep things in check. And I, I like you mentioned a couple times in the book about how you mentioned a particular case to him, and he mentioned, well, I don't know because I wasn't there and neither were you. And that's one of the things that has to be taken into consideration with these accounts is unless we see it with our own eyes, we're not going to believe it, we're not going to be able to accurately uh, study it. But we do have, as you've mentioned, credible eyewitness testimony from some uh, pretty amazing people, uh, people who, you know, their their jobs depends on coming back with these reports, policemen, clergymen, uh, EMTs in some cases. Uh, was there ever anybody who, uh, when they gave you this information, uh, told you that their job was in peril uh, from what they had seen? Indirectly, yes. Um, there's a case of a um, woman in in uh, Canada. I can't I can't use her name because uh, she doesn't want her husband or anyone else finding out because of the stigma attached. We I call her Sarah in my book, and she has been tested um, from time to time in Laurentian University in Sudbury, Canada, by a, uh, neuro, a neurologist who's fairly skeptical. His name is Michael Persinger. Now uh, he tested her in uh, Sudbury and. Um, she didn't. She felt like she was under pressure, and she didn't perform that well in the lab. And she went back to the hotel room, and she and he said, "Well, if you feel like you're going to make," your, she had a pinwheel. I must back up for a minute. She had a little pinwheel, homemade pinwheel, she made, and she focuses on this pinwheel to try to make it move, not through RSPK, which is poltergeist activity, but PK, which is psychokinesis. And she gave me a um, demonstration on Skype one day, and I saw the pinwheel moving around and around it didn't stop now she could have faked it but uh i was um, i was quite impressed anyway when she took her show to uh, laurentian it didn't work but they said call us back at the hotel room if you feel like you can do it so she phones a few hours later and persinger couldn't go but he sent uh, a, a young student over there and he saw apparently the pinwheel move so i say to persinger can you uh, please give me the, the uh, young man's name and i can interview him and he said, certainly not. He said, uh, if you put his name in, he's going to bl- get blackballed from ever getting a job in mainstream science. As soon as he mo- uses that word psychokinesis or poltergeist, he's not going to get a job. So I thought that was quite striking. That shows you the stigma which is involved not only uh, in poltergeist uh, cases, but PK cases, perhaps generally in uh, paranormal activity. Well, one of the things I'd be concerned with if I was you know, a researcher uh, getting involved in psychology is putting that parapsychology tag on myself. Uh, it's it's a name that seems to be more uh, respectable to some, but it's also a name that seems to have a stigma, especially to those in the in the paranormal community, because they think when you're a parapsychologist that there's uh, you know a tendency to just label yourself as such. That the psychology part of it is is kind of lost to people, and they say, well, you know, you, anybody can call themselves a parapsychologist. Well, these days that's true because there aren't degreed programs anymore like there used to be. Um, what what do we need to see happen? And you mentioned earlier uh, the the lack of funding and the fact that these colleges are closing up these uh, centers for studying this stuff. But what needs to to take place for that to kick back into high gear? Do you think if there was a really credible case in the media, we might see more? Uh, investigation into it? Well, there was uh, the St. Catherine's case I mentioned was the most credible case. I'll get back to it in a few minutes, but I think what we need, Tim, is more open mind, open minds in mainstream society, mm-hmm. mainstream science, mainstream society. If we, as you say, that, that stigma attached, as soon as you mentioned, paranormal, but 
really uh, scientists coming up with uh, new things all the time. We just don't think of them as paranormal. I tend to think of poltergeist activity as super-natural. I think it's a natural thing, albeit very rare, part of the fight-or-flight system. Now, whether we can control this consciously, that's another question. That's probably uh, maybe a question for another generation. Who knows? But, indeed, we need uh, more research funds, but I think we need um, open-mindedness as well. Do you want me to read you a little uh, passage from the police report of that one, uh, St. Catherine's case? Oh, sure. Yep. You mentioned people about, you know, uh, worrying about their jobs and such. Well, of course, the police officers uh, don't want to go back to the cop shop when they have this uh, tale to tell. However, over a two-week period, this entire shift of police officers in 1970 in St. Catharines swore they saw all this activity revolving around this 11-year-old boy. Now, here's one of the reports from Friday, February 7th, the police report. Constable Scotty Crawford, he said that a heavy bed had been raised two feet off the floor by an unseen force. He said he rushed into the room and saw the bed approximately two feet off the floor at one end, unsupported by anything. He said, not believing my eyes, I summoned other police officers. A couple of days later, February 10th, for about the 12th time in almost two weeks, Constable Bill Weir said he saw John Mulvey, that's a pseudonym I give the boy, thrown off a chair. Weir wrote in his report, quote, I attended in the morning and was assisted by Constable Eddie Batorsky. While I was there, I witnessed some phenomenal occurrences which I have attached to this report. At 9 p.m., I proceeded to the residence again with Constable Crawford, where we again witnessed some very unusual things taking place. Between the time of the two calls, I contacted Mr. Bradley, the city building inspector. We both agreed that the causes of these weird occurrences were in no way connected to the building structure itself. My only solution to these occurrences is that the boy... Uh, whom, around whom all the occurrences uh, went, was a poltergeist agent. Now, Weir, Weir's report was later signed and authorized by his commanding officer. But what he didn't put on the report, and what another officer told me later, was that Weir said he got the treatment from this, on this unseen force himself. Weir told Constable Harry Fox that the poltergeist force picked up a chair he was sitting in and tipped him on his ass. Now, if this little uh, 11-year-old 60-pound boy had really done that physically, that would be a tough one, I think, Tim, to explain to the boys back at the station. <laughs> For sure. And you mentioned the, the poltergeist agent, you know, in this case being an 11-year-old boy. And one of the discussions that's kind of going on in our chat room on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com is uh, it does seem like so many of these cases, though, do revolve around prepubescent females. The females do seem to be more prevalent in the cases that we hear about. In the studies that you've done, it, does it seem to be a good mix, or is there one gender over the other? Uh, yes, there are more girls than boys involved in uh, talking about puberty. In the Enfield case in 77 uh, in London, there was a parapsychologist named his name is uh, Guy Lee in Playfair. Now, he traced the problems of the poltergeist agent who was said to be an 11-year-old girl, partly to the fact she was entering puberty. Uh, Playfair, he believed that this relate, was related to her pineal gland located at the center of the brain. It's a gland responsible for controlling the release of sexual hormones. Now, Playfair believed that during puberty, the gland can secrete a type of creative energy. Oh, yes, and it is seen. It, it's uh, also seen in boys all around that time, but uh, probably more girls. Well, taking a look at what's going on at that particular stage in a person's life and, and how that could relate to PK, again, it, it's something that, you know, it's it doesn't happen to every teenage, uh, every preteen, uh, mm -hmm. but it, it can happen. What is it about that 
entering into puberty where we have this ability to suddenly take on these new abilities? I don't know. I don't think we know. Uh, Playfair was you know, alluding to it that uh, somehow this uh, pineal gland is, um, in some cases, uh, I guess under some circumstances, uh, emitting this type of energy which the person with the, uh, with the unusual brain can use this energy somehow to move objects. Now, I, I don't know when we'll, if we'll ever be able to prove this, but there seems to be a relation. Not all, it's not always, though. It's only one angle. As I mentioned, the woman in her 40s, now she's long past puberty, and uh, the things are still going on with her. In fact, hers is an unusual case because she had, she has reported both RSPK and PK in her life. She says that the poltergeist activity occurs when her husband gets her upset, and um, things like uh, glasses and cups go uh, wandering down the uh, desk. And uh, thing, in fact, I think uh, she told me a, a large appliance uh, went crazy, and there's electrical things going on when her husband's getting her upset. But then she tried, she's been trying to transfer this into more positive energy. She just hates this RSPK, and that's why she made this pinwheel. And she's been trying to focus this energy on the pinwheel, and perhaps that's a link to the future. If we can learn to um, tightly focus, like uh, some people, Yuri Geller being one in the past, have done, then maybe we can uh, try to harness this, and maybe uh, you and I can become Lex Luthor and take over the world, Tim. <laughs> I'd be happy enough just to be able to bring the remote over to myself when I'm uh, sitting on the couch without having to get up. Sure. But uh, we're talking with Michael Clarkson. He's the author of The Poltergeist Phenomenon, an in-depth investigation into floating beds, smashing glass, and other unexplained disturbances. His website is michaelclarkson.com, and the book's available through amazon.com and all those sites too, right? Yes, yes. And if anybody has any questions, you want to call in, one eight seven seven nine nine six fourteen twenty is the number. You can also call in 508-996-0500, email SpookyCrew at SpookySouthCoast.com, and the chat room at SpookyTV on SpookySouthCoast.com is a great way to send in your questions as well. When I was reading the book, and I'm, I'm reading, I, I was very impressed, by the way, that you know, being a journalist, you took that journalistic approach and, and really didn't let your own opinions muddy what was going on. You were letting the different sides come through. Uh, but what really impressed me was the fact that you kept going back to uh, the work of people like Roll, uh, people like Ryan, and, and some of these other investigators who uh, really made this, for a time, very credible in the eyes of a, a good deal of the public. Uh, when going over and, and speaking with these gentlemen, as you did, and discussing with them, was there any concern on their part that, because this is something we talk about in the paranormal community, that sometimes the investigator... Uh, could be an agent for some of the phenomenon. Was there any concern on their part uh, investigating these poltergeist cases that maybe they themselves were also poltergeist agents and when they were going into the situation, they were kind of combining their forces with that of whoever was in the house? Uh, no, not directly. There was, um, in the case of an Enfield case of uh, Maurice Gross, and uh, he's, he's a parapsychologist who's passed on. He was the lead investigator in that case, and um, the girl's name was Janet. 11-year-old girl. Now, he had had, I believe, uh, maybe I may have to read my own work, uh, back up on my work in this, but he had a daughter who was sim very similar, died at a young age. And some people thought that somehow Gross may have been interacting with this poltergeist agent because of the grief or some fight-or-flight response to something that had been going on years before in his own life. But that's the only case I can think of where there's anything... Uh, what you just described. I think 
in most cases, the parapsychologists are, like William Rowe, they're fairly logical, calm people, and they don't bring a lot of stress, which seems to be one of the components to poltergeist activity. In fact, most of the psychologists I've talked to who have been involved in credible cases, that's what they try to bring to the case is a type of calmness because the uh, the family needs to be calmed down. Obviously, the poltergeist agent needs to be calmed down. If you want, I can read a little bit. Uh, I've got in the back of the book what the parapsychologist suggests for help for anyone who thinks they've got a poltergeist agent in the house. Sure. Yep. How do you get rid of an alleged poltergeist? Most cases of RSPK seem to die a natural death after a few weeks or months, and sometimes it eases with the easing of stress in the household. Sometimes the occurrences end when the agent realizes he or she is the cause. Other times, psychotherapy seems to help. Generally, exorcisms don't seem to work, but clergy and parapsychologists report some relief in the victims when they counsel the family. If the stress in a family is addressed, paranormal activity will often disappear. Also, people who are, I'm sorry, people who call up are often very upset about what's happening, said uh, the late Maurice Gross. He was the late chairman of the uh, Society of Psychical Research in England. And he did, uh, for more than 60 years, he studied poltergeist. I quote him, I reassure them that they won't be damaged by it, and sometimes this helps. Our role is partly being a social worker. Gross advises people not to move out of their homes because the paranormal activity will likely be dragged along with them. Rather, they should try to work out their problems and issues. Uh, a final note here, as strange as it sounds, a poltergeist case can be good for relieving tension in an unusual family situation according to British psychologist Dr. John Layard. I quote him, Poltergeists are not chance phenomena, but have a definite purpose. It is a curative one, having for its object the resolution of a psychological conflict. Often the poltergeist agent has no other way to relieve the unusual buildup or frustration, whether it is psychological or sexual. And and that's something that I find to be particularly uh, interesting, is that the fact that if this does play itself out, do we see a lot of these cases where there was that stress, where there was that conflict? Does it go away once the phenomena peters out? Is, does that seem to be the trend? They, that's their guesswork. Now, uh, Gross was involved, though, in this Enfield case, which went on for about a year. Tina Reich's case didn't go on that long. There have been a couple of other cases which went on for a great length and with uh, calm parapsychologists there. But I think in the main, in general, yes, I think it tends to relieve stress in the household, and then perhaps the poltergeist agent feels less stressed, feels less repressed, feels like he's being listened to by someone, perhaps the clergy or the parapsychologist. So then I think the poltergeist uh, activity tends to uh, cease. I think in these more modern times, it would be interesting to, to kind of correlate uh, between these poltergeist cases and whether or not the family is also uh, in you know therapy, family therapy, uh, to find out if there's any kind of you know conflict management going on. I'm going to guess that in these cases where uh, it does build up to the point of poltergeist activity that they hadn't already taken those steps to relieve the tension in the family. Probably not. Some of them come from uh, working-class homes where there have been, um, especially in England, where they have been in a council housing, sort of a government projects, and there's been a lot of stress in the household uh, because of uh, economy and uh, most often the people have not sought help uh, through uh, psychiatry or psychology, 
And so uh, this is, I think, one of the reasons that the uh, stress builds up. Now, uh, we mentioned uh, before uh, I get off the air here, I wanted to mention one other thing. We talked about frauds earlier. Mm-hmm. There are also a number of hallucinations I found. I mentioned Persinger early, from the doctor from uh, neuroscientist from uh, Sudbury. Now, he's a bit of a skeptic, but he, he, he tries to keep an open mind. He believes that many mystical experiences, including poltergeists, also ghosts, out-of-body experiences, and alien abductions, are linked to excessive bursts of electri- electrical activity in the temporal lobes, the area of the brain responsible for regulation of emotions, and again, the fight-or-flight response. People with te- sensitive temporal lobes get frequent bursts of electrical activity and may be more susceptible to paranormal hallucinations than others, Persinger said. They may also be creative and have experiences resembling those of epileptics. He also believes that these people are particularly susceptible to hallucinations when they are near an electromagnetic field. And he said he'd been able to prove some of his theories in the lab by putting helmets on people and exposing them to electromagnetic signals. Now, he found out four of five people reported a mystical experience, the feeling that there was a sentient being or entity standing behind them or near them. He said that some people weep and some people feel God has touched them, but others say they feel in the presence of demons or evil spirits. So, as you can see, we're dealing with a quite a complex subject, but even a skeptic like Persinger, he's open-minded when it comes to cases like the Sarah woman uh, in Canada who uh, is being tested right now by himself and also William Rowe is involved in that case. William Rowe is semi-retired. He's doing a handful of cases still, and he believes that Sarah woman is a a very good case, and if she would ever come forward, come make herself public, perhaps uh, she could be studied even even further. But again, there's a stigma attached, and she actually is becoming a scientist. I can't say in what in what uh, field of science because it would tend uh, tend to identify her. Well, hopefully, uh, if she can come out into the public, she'll get into parapsychology because we need some more of them. Yes, you're right. Uh, well, when we're talking about the idea of the you know, the frontal lobe and, and being able to kind of stimulate some of those waves. Uh, our guest who's actually coming on in the second hour, Bill Chapel, one of the devices that he's worked on is is the so-called God helmet, where yeah. you can actually stimulate that to have that presence of an otherworldly and more more sentient being being present in the room. Uh, and so if we can see that that actually can happen, it, it does kind of make sense to that theory you were just talking about. Yes, I wonder if you work with person because he uses that term God helmet as well. We, we can find out for sure. Yeah. Bill, Bill's uh, kind of an amazing guy with some of the stuff he's uh, invented. So we're talking to him tonight about uh, a device he's – I don't know if you're familiar with the original Spiracom uh, from George Meek in the 1970s and 80s. but Yeah, slightly, but again, it's sort of uh, off my topic. There, there is actually another machine uh, called the Poltergeist machine. Mm-hmm. You have me? I've got a, if you've got a couple of minutes, I can go into that. Sure. There's a uh, Canadian electromagnetics pioneer – well, he called himself a pioneer – I have not had the chance to interview him. His name is John Hutchinson. Uh, he claims to have uh, reached a type of zero-point energy. When we refer to that, it means uh, gravity suspended briefly for one reason or another, and this is why objects move. Uh, he's, he said he's reached this zero-point energy during experiments, and he made this uh, weird machine. He said he came upon these findings by accident. He crammed a room into a room a variety of devices which emit electromagnetic fields, such as Tesla coils, Van de Graaff generators, RF transmitters, and signal generators. Now, he claims after they've been operating for a while, bizarre things reportedly occurred. Objects levitated in the air and hovered about or moved about and fell. Fires broke out around the building. A mirror, a mirror swat, uh, smashed. 
metal distorted and broke, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I, I don't think his, uh, his invention is in the mainstream yet, but um, it, it goes to show you that people are working on this type of thing. Now, whether, whether they get to prove it uh, or whether they're, they're met by uh, the Amazing Randy-type skepticism and, uh, and slowed down, uh, we'll see. Doctor, forgive me because uh, it's been a number of years now that we've been doing this show, and I can't can't remember every episode that we've done. But I do think that we've uh, I think we've had John Hutchinson on the show. Oh, you're kidding! Good for you. Uh, well, he worked on uh, a recreation of the Philadelphia experiment with, yes, that's with true. Uh, Dr. Ron Millione. So that's what yeah. we were discussing in that particular program. Uh, yeah. There is one question that I want to ask before we leave you, and uh, just because I think this is something that we we will see addressed in more and more modern cases, but one of our uh, listeners in the chat room is wondering about uh, if there's uh, confirmed cases of uh, familial abuse in some of these poltergeist agents. Has there been uh, a tie-in with actual abuse, or is it just that psychological tension that we were talking about? There has not been any charges, as far as I know. There's been uh, there's been a, a couple of cases where it's been alleged, but uh, sadly, in the Tina Rice case, uh, this may not answer your question, but in the Tina Rice case, years later, she was a 14 year old girl when it happened. But years later, she was charged and convicted of uh, manslaughter of killing her baby daughter, mm-hmm. and uh, she is uh, actually still in jail in uh, Georgia. So I, I, that's sort of a backwards way around that. But I, I don't think there has been there hasn't been any cases for sure where. Uh, a family member has been charged with physical abuse, but I think it's mainly psychological. I think the, the psychological is enough, I think, in most cases to uh, trigger some sort of uh, psychic tantrum. And there might be some abuse after the after the uh, phenomenon starts, too, when you you know, you get like a candlestick to the head <laughs> or yes, whatever else might true. be flying around. Yeah, there have been a few uh, people injured in my the cases I've found, but none seriously. And uh, as we continue to look uh, into the idea of poltergeist more, we'd we'd like to have you back uh, again sometime in the future to talk not only about this, but also I I do want to get more into the idea of fear sometime. And uh, when I was researching for an article I had to write, I was just fascinated by uh, the fact that there are people who get off on fear. And I think that uh, some of these poltergeist chasers, paranormal investigators, people who check this stuff out are just fear junkies. Yes, adrenaline junkies. All right, well, let's talk about that sometime down the line. But for now, the book is called The Poltergeist Phenomena. Uh, it is by Michael Clarkson. You can go to his website, michaelclarkson.com, and you can also get the book from uh, amazon.com, spookysouthcoast.com. should have it uh, in our store as well and uh, wherever else you buy books. So thank you very much, sir, for joining us, and uh, hopefully we can talk again soon. Thanks for having me, Tim. All right, have a great night. All right, so, uh, Matt, we're going to take a break now for the news. When we come back, You've got to do a lot of work over there because we've got a whole bunch of Spiritcom clips that we need you to run for us. Uh, some of the original George Meek, Bill O'Neill Spiritcom clips. We've also got some examples of the new device that's been created by Bill Chappell. Now, if you haven't bought a ticket yet to the February 26th Dead of Winter event at the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast, I think there's only like seven or eight left. And this is going to be your chance to actually use this Spiritcom in person. Uh, supposedly, now... The original Spiritcom, people lean toward it being a hoax. We're going to get into a lot of that with Jeff Belanger and Bill Chappell coming up in the next hour. But this device works a little bit differently than theirs did. And if you've used any of Bill's uh, inventions in the past, you understand how he works and what he's all about. But if not, you're going to find out coming up in the next hour. It's going to be a little bit harder to fake this because I can't just I can't picture Jeff Belanger sitting there with a Peter Frampton talk box and uh, – 
try, trying to fool everybody into thinking it's paranormal activity because he'd just be saying like bad words and you know different things. Ima- just imagine Jeff with a Frampton talk box, what he would be doing. So, all right, well, stay tuned. We'll be back with more here on Spooky South Coast. I know who you are. Spooky South Coast. That's a good show, man. You know what? I got a theory about your show. You guys got no idea what's going on. Well, excuse me for having enormous flaws that I don't work on. Spooky South Coast is back. The key to the whole thing is to think as a child. And for me, that comes very easy. I Welcome back. Hour number two of Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa. Science advisor Matt Moniz is out partying in a fundraiser, so he's going to miss all the great Spiritcom talk that I've been discussing with him off the air for the last couple of weeks and trying to get his opinions. And, you know, he was going to save it for the show, and of course now he's not here. So, but that's okay, because we have two people who know way more about the topic. We have Jeff Belanger joining us. You know him. You love him. 30-odd minutes ghostvillage.com, countless books, and the occasional appearances outside my window at night. How are you, Jeff? How are you doing? You tonight. How are you guys doing tonight? We are spooktacular. I know, spooktacular. I get it. Tim, I'm sorry I couldn't be with you in person, <laughs> but uh, I figured if I was there, we wouldn't be able to keep our hands off each other. That's usually what happens, yeah. Yeah, you know how it goes. Hey, are we on the air yet? We are, yes. Oh, man. Awkward. Awkward. A little bit. <laughs> And also joining us, we have, we're very pleased to have, uh, for the first time, uh, somebody who we've been wanting to talk to in the past. Uh, Matt, you got my, thank you, I need my sheet. Not that I don't know Bill Chappell's name, but I want to make sure I give the correct website. DigitalDowsing.com is his website. He's the lead designer and engineer for Digital Dowsing, the creator of many of the hottest tools in the paranormal trade today. You've seen his devices on many of the paranormal TV shows, most notably Ghost Adventures. And his paranormal puck, obelisk, and EM pump are just a few of the devices that have revolutionized the science of paranormal investigation. Good evening, Bill. Thank you for joining us. Well, good evening, Matt and Tim. It's a pleasure to be on the show. We're sorry that you had to be on with Jeff, though. Well, you know, you got to make sacrifices. <laughs> <laughs> you could do worse, Bill, and you know it. <laughs> oh, yes, I have. <laughs> well, Jeff, why don't you give everybody who hasn't heard a little bit of a rundown of what Spiritcom is? I know that you've been uh, doing a lot of research into the topic, and and you're familiar with it from your many years of writing books about communicating with the dead. But what would you describe it to uh, in layman's terms? All right. Spearcom, it's a big story, and uh, sorry to go this far back, but I think it's kind of important. Uh, The Spearcom story really starts in the 1850s 
when someone took a daguerreotype camera and got something weird when they took a photo and they said, whoa, maybe this, this mechanical device can be used to capture a glimpse of the other side, of, of spirits, of, of something, you know, uh, that's beyond our normal understanding. And, uh, and since then, every time there's been a communication device, you know, Edison invented the phonograph and now we could record sound and play it back. Uh, it didn't take very long for someone to try to adapt that device for the uh, for the realm of spirit communication, and uh, really, uh, we got to start. In the, then you go to jump to the 1950s when you've got a guy named uh, Frederick Jurgensen who started. Uh, really was the, the grandfather of EVP or electronic voice phenomena research, where you take an audio recorder and you capture alleged spirit voices. You know, you play it, ask questions, and sometimes you get. Um, you know, you get voices back in the playback. So EVP had been around for decades, and what happened in the uh, in the 1960s and 70s is a whole new realm started to emerge called ITC, or Instrumental Transcommunication. And the idea was, well, what else can we use to try to bridge that gap with the other side? And uh, people like George Meek, who started the MetaScience Foundation, uh, were so excited by the, the whole concept of EVP, they said, well, gee, you know, imagine... If we could get that dialogue going in real time, just like a phone call or, or a two-way radio, uh, something like that. And so uh, he, he set out and got a, a team of uh, engineers and science people and psychics and all kinds of folks together and said, let's start building a machine that can do that, that can be EVP in real time, where you can talk and hear the response and, and go back and forth. And, uh, and and what's so interesting to me now is that, of course, you know, if you watch any of the paranormal shows, you see things like the Shack Hack or the you know Frank's Box, all these other things. Um, you know, you know, we're building off of ideas that have been around for a long, long time. But really, it was the '70s that ITC got a, a shot in the arm. That the, the term got coined, and uh, and and it's uh, and that was the promise that this machine could go back and forth with the dead, um, and allegedly the. The guy that built it, Bill O'Neill, did communicate with uh, a spirit named Doc Mueller. Who, uh, you know, this is this is all allegedly. You know, there's there's some holes in the story, and we're going to talk about them. But uh, but that's more or less the the birth of of Spiritcom, the machine. Bill, did I leave anything out? Oh uh, no, Jeff. I think you've uh, covered it quite well. Oh, thanks. Well, now, how how does uh, the idea though of this two way communication? Uh, we we've seen that develop over the years uh, in different form and fashion. But uh, at what point, Bill, did you decide that you know, with all the work that you've done and all the devices that you've created in the paranormal field, that uh, a new version of Spiritcom was the way to go? Well, I, and now let's just back up. I I created a version of Spiritcom just to go back and recreate it. Um, it wasn't a matter of a second genesis. Mm-hmm. It was just a matter of taking what was done, breaking the components down, and just recreating the device. So it's, it's more of a kind of just to see what they were, what they were doing and seeing uh, how we could kind of use more modern technology to improve upon it? Correct. Well, you know, there's always been a tremendous amount of interest in Spiritcom, so it was just something that uh, I just decided to do. And I'm definitely not the first person to do it. There have been several others doing the same thing. Uh, what I did is sat down and broke out each component separately um, because what I'm more interested in is, is the medium that makes it possible. In, a, in other words, is it really the transmission of frequency? Is it the reception of frequency? Is it the voice chamber? 
You know, what component in this system makes this possible, if it's possible? And uh, that was really the premise. And, and Tim, just to, sorry to jump in here, but before we get too far, we should probably explain how Spiricom worked, or at least, you know, it, uh, in component terms. Um, the original Spiricom was uh, a, a transmitter, a radio transmitter, a radio receiver, and, uh, you know, and a, and a microphone, which could go out to, uh, you know, a microphone in and, um, and a speaker out. Correct, Bill? It was basically, what, like four components, if we're going to mm -hmm. make this real simple? Well, actually, you, you actually, if you want to talk, depending on the version you go to, let's probably talk Mark III, Mark IV, which is probably arguably the only version that they, they admittedly had any real success with. Um, in that version, you had tone generation to a transmitter, you had a receiver, and then you had an echo chamber and an amplification system, and then that's when it's recorded. There was really no uh, voice input into the system. Okay, right. And so, so really, so, so the, the 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 communication uh, could happen in any number of spots in that cycle. So if you picture it as, uh, you know, uh, two two halves, I guess you'd have the tone generator, which were specific tones that are, um, you know. Uh, in the human range, the human voice range, being transmitted and then uh, and then being received a very short distance, you know, literally inches uh, later, being received through another antenna, fed through an echo chamber, and then out to a speaker slash recorder slash whatever. So uh, if a spirit is out there, an intelligent entity, and it can uh, intercept or, or intercede into that signal, they're going to jump in somewhere. Uh, you would assume maybe in the transmission or in the echo chamber or whatever, um, but what's amazing is that this machine, there, there's hours of really compelling audio uh, that, that uh, Tim, I think you have some, and I'm hoping mm -hmm. we can play it pretty soon, uh, of this machine, which is why we still talk about it so much. And, you know, we're at, I, I'm at a very early stage in some research into this, and Bill and I have been talking a lot about really trying to, to get the story down because we're only going back to really the late 1970s, early 1980s, and already this this thing is taking on a life of its own, especially in the par paranormal community. You know, um, people don't know what it is, what it isn't, and I think we, it's time to really document that story. But the reason I think it's still so powerful and profound is because these audio recordings are, can be found all over the web. You're going to play some in a second where you hear Bill O'Neill, the, the living engineer, talking, and you hear this um, uh, very monotone voice come back, but it's very clearly words. I mean, you could play it for five different people, and they, they would pretty much all agree on what was being said. That's what's so amazing about this thing. Now, what's making that work? We can get into that in a second, but Tim, could you maybe uh, cue up a... Um, you know, cue up one of those audio clips. Yeah, I'd like to play the one that's called Cut Frequencies Map. But before we do that, let's explain just a little bit of uh, who will be speaking in this communication. It's going to be Bill O'Neill, as we mentioned, who was, he had claimed to have mediumship abilities. Right. And uh, he would be discussing with uh, Dr. George Jeffries Mueller, who was uh, allegedly a NASA scientist who had made communication with O'Neill through the Spiricom device. Uh, of course, he never actually existed according to some people but we'll get into all that a little bit later on and uh, so we're going to play this uh, called cut frequencies and you'll get a little bit of a the back and forth between uh, bill o'neill and doc mueller and you'll see kind of what went on uh, in the way that this communication took place so just a minute doctor yes i know you're here but i've got to i'm going to cut down the volume of these other frequencies 
brought them down to a level that won't... Uh, So that's just uh, one example of, uh, and we, we do have others that we can play during the course of the uh, the hour, uh, but that's just one example of that communication, and you, you just hear that very loud, pronounced buzzing <laughs> that comes through, and that's kind of a, a, a an interesting aspect unto itself, which we'll talk about later on. But, uh, Bill, when you uh, hear that, I mean, do you just automatically hear a way that that can be perfected for more modern use, or... or is that the limits of the technology of the time? Uh, well, uh, boy, that's that's a hard one to answer. Yeah, it can be it can be improved upon with the technology we have today. It could have been done differently with the technology was in the seventies. That's what I was wondering. Um, I mean, it just sounds you know, like they could have gotten a much more high fidelity sound, uh, and that maybe it needed to be the way that it was for it to work. Well, that's that's very. Uh, it's an arguable subject. Um, you know, the idea behind the tones, if you look at the frequencies that were generated, were to be able to produce the harmonics and subharmonics to get us within that range of human speech. There's about a, a 4 kilohertz bandwidth of human speech, so basically 300 hertz to about, about 3,500 kilohertz, where human speech is normally taking place. And those tones were set up to be able to give a mixture of that with. The idea is that the tones could be used somehow to recreate speech with whatever they were you know, contacting. Mm. Uh, the difficulty is that the, the tones themselves. Now, today it would be very easy to actually go in and create the specific tones and then filter the tones back out. We can do this on a computer very quickly. So we could actually take the, the tone pattern in, the tone pattern out, and just keep the difference which should theoretically just be the uh, modulated speech. And with, uh, Jeff, with the research that you've done into this so far, uh, I mean, I'm sure you've listened to a ton of these clips and uh, trying to find one that's a little bit clearer than the other, I mean, that's that's pretty much as good as it gets with a lot of these original recordings. Yeah, pretty much. And, uh, you know, here's what's interesting is that, uh, you know, there's... there's um and, and I'm, I'm reading through the manual now, the Spiritcom manual, which, uh, which is really interesting. You know, like one of the motives that, that uh, cynics often, um, you know, point to when it comes to this kind of stuff is, ah, they're just in it to make money. They're going to bilk people. You know, you read the first page of the, uh, the manual on Spiritcom, and uh, let me just quote it, quote it for a second, which I think it's, it's great, where it flat out says, um, you know, uh, on behalf of everyone involved, I state that we have not filed for any patents in any countries on the many inventions uh, represented by the equipment presented herein. The material in this report has not been copyrighted. The name Spiricom has not been trademarked. So they're more or less saying, 
take this, um, you know, take this and, and, and spread it around and use it for further research. It's, it's all very noble sounding, which is, which is great. So uh, it, it begs the question, if they're hoaxing, to what end? Now, I don't know all the details yet. There's still a lot more research to do as to whether they did try to make any money with this. But for the most part, um, it, you know, everything that's out there right now makes it sound like it, this was this was for the world to use. Now, here's here's a couple of problems that I have with it. There was only one person uh, who ever successfully used Spiricom, and that's Bill O'Neill. Uh, according to everyone involved, if you or I walked up to the machine, it probably wouldn't work unless we were really talented mediums, which they claim Bill O'Neill was. So that's one issue. Um, always tricky when you have a device that only one person in the world uh you know, is able to successfully use. Um, the other thing is, and this is the bigger debate, is this device called a Larynx, which um, has been around a long time. Um, you know, if you've ever listened to uh, Frampton Comes Alive, Peter Frampton's, you know, one of the biggest hits of the 70s, Do You Feel Like I Do? There's that guitar solo thing where he, he goes through a talk box, you know, Do You Feel Like I Do? And, and that's more or less the same technology. And if one was involved... Um, that's kind of interesting. And when you hear Bill O'Neill talk on some of those clips, you can actually hear his words repeating through the Spiricom, almost in stereo, uh, as he's speaking. And he never speaks at the same time that the spirit voice speaks. And so there's, there's, there's issues here. There's definite issues that, um, you know, raise, raise question and doubt. I, I, I understand that. Um, but it's still, it, it's, Still intriguing, and I want to know. And, and, if, and if we can reproduce it as, as, as Bill Chapel has, I've seen his um, his new device. And as, as Bill said, you know, Jesus isn't rocket science; it's just you know echo chamber and radio and, and things like that. Oh, can it work? Can we sit different people in front of it and see if they can get anything out of it? That's what's really intriguing to me, and uh, and, and very open source and everything on the table. Well, I want to take a step back a little bit to what you said there about uh, the idea of the electrolarynx and the Frampton Talk Box. Uh, there's a gentleman named uh, Dr. Stephen Rourke who ha had a website called SpiricomStudy.com, but that one's no longer active. Uh, he now has GoBeyondNow.com, which uh, doesn't seem to have his full Spiricom files up anymore. And, and what he did is he actually had uh, an engineer put together side-by-side -side comparisons of the original Spiricom device uh, with Doc Mueller singing Mary Had a Little Lamb, uh, then to go into the electrolarynx, and then go into the Frampton talk box, one right after the other. So uh, Mary had three devices, I called it, Matt, if you want to run that one real quick. So there you have it. Those are the three, the three different types of devices. The original Spiricom first, the electrolarynx second, and then the Frampton Talkbox third. And then there's also, you mentioned, Jeff, the idea of the doubling up in some of the clips. And uh, Rourke had a very good uh, example of that. Called I called it Spiricom hoax, Matt, on the file list. And uh, in this one here, you can you can clearly hear the bleeding over of everything he's saying into the room being picked up by the Spiricom device and, and even some of the start sentence uh, in one voice and end it in the other. So let's play that one. Well, I'll tell you what, sir. Why don't I 
shut the system down, switch over to this other RF generator, and see if it's stable now. I'll tell you what, sir. Why don't I shut the system down, switch over to this other RF generator, so you can kind of hear that it, it, it's like a very sensitive microphone picking up what's being said across the room. Is that uh, that make you scratch your head a little bit, Jeff? Yeah, I mean it, it does. And you know, like I said, there's there's a lot of issues here. But at the same time, I also accept, and this is completely non-scientific. Let me be right up front and say that I accept that there are. Uh, there are spiritual endeavors at work here. Uh, I accept that this stuff may not be proven and repeatable for everybody, that when it comes to these kinds of things, uh, you know, it, it, it's, you know, belief uh, in those kinds of things are going to have be a, play a factor in it. And so that's why I'm so curious. Um, and if you talk to folks that are that are big into ITC, people like Mark Macy of the World ITC Foundation, he'll tell you, you know, people are using anything for spirit communication. You know, for example, there will be people that uh, use a, a disconnected phone, a regular old telephone that's not connected with any wires to anything, and they'll pick it up at the same time every day and wait for contact. And some people claim they're getting contact. So if a, an unused, no energy running through a telephone could work, then uh, something as complex as, uh, you know, radio transmitters and receivers and echo chambers and tone generators, I imagine that could also work. Maybe even easier if you uh, subscribe to the, the theory of white noise, the idea that spirits need something to work with and, um, you know, and that kind of stuff. So, uh, you know, it does make me scratch my head. I know Bill O'Neill was a uh, ventriloquist as a hobbyist. I know he had uh, psychological issues and, in fact, uh, was um, committed in an asylum for them. There, you know, there's lots and lots of things here that, that make you scratch your head and say, you know, I'm, I'm not so sure that, that he had genuine contact. But, boy, people defend it to the death. They play those clips over and over again. And I'm saying it's time to let's let's find that machine if it's still out there. Let's wire up Bill's new machine and see if, if anyone can get results with it. And, Bill, that's the key to this is uh, with Bill O'Neill being the only one that could successfully operate the Spiritcom, uh, obviously your devices, you know, you want them to be available for multiple people to use or else what's the point of introducing them to the field? Uh, but that is something that we see a lot of, though, with these types of devices is you hear these specific individuals, and I'm not going to name any names, but they say, you know, <laughs> it only works for me. I've been told that I'm the one that's been chosen to use this device. And uh, it, we can kind of clear right away at the beginning. You're not saying that you've been chosen to use the Spiricom, right? <laughs> uh, no, I haven't been chosen to use anything in particular. Um, let's let's kind of talk about it real quick. I think I think Jeff's absolutely right. ITC is not strictly a mechanical medium uh, or an electronic medium. I mean, you're talking about reflective pools, water. I, you know, I've heard it described that you use and toilet paper. Um, as an engineer, my biggest problem with ITC is, is the human factor of it. And when I started digital dowsing, uh, I got into this with the idea of taking a human out of the equation. Well, several years later, I'm back to putting the human in the equation because I realize it is the key component. That being said, it doesn't make sense to me intuitively that there would be a device on the planet and only one person could use it. Um, we've seen ITC work 
across a myriad of people. So I think that uh, I think it's it's a matter of intent and practice and diligence. Now that being said, not everything works. Not everything is an exact science. I, I think I'm probably much more skeptical than most people about it. Uh, I think the, the standards I hold for what I consider to be true communications are much more rigid than most people do. But but in in, in when talking about the spirit com, what's incredibly interesting is the amount of time. I mean, we're spanning several years, a large amount of money, several people in this project, documentation. Uh, you know, there had to be something there. If you ask me, was the Spiritcom a hoax? I don't think so. I believe the device was built. Did it actually perform and work without Bill O'Neill? Well, even they're telling you that it didn't. So now the suspect principles come involved with what is the actual machine, and that's kind of a, a controversy. And then... You know, what did Bill O'Neill add to the equation? And is there someone else we can plug in today in modern times that can give us the same effect? Well, when you were looking at the original schematics for the Spiritcom mm -hmm. that they built, which I'm assuming was probably the size of a room, uh, as computers, you know, were in the early 70s, I'm sure they were able to kind of perfect it as they went along on the different models that they made. Uh, but when you're looking at those original designs, did you see things in it that kind of made you scratch your head? There are, there are a few different things. There's some discrepancies in the antenna equations that show up. Um, and just things from the rudimentary way that the spear comms were produced. Uh, the Mark One was at uh, 300 megahertz. The Mark II was at 1.2 gigahertz. The Mark Three and Four were cleared down at 29 megahertz. And then the Mark V was set to go at uh, 10 gigahertz again. So... They're moving all over the spectrum as far as radio transmission is concerned. Uh, you know, that, that's one. There, there are certain things in the schematics when you look at them as an engineer, you, you keep scratching your head and saying, okay, this is missing or it's incomplete. And uh, so I look at this documentation, and I don't know how the document was written. Was it meant to be a technical journal? No, I don't think so. I think it was meant just to, to basically peak and produce interest with other people in the field. But, uh, yeah, there, there definitely are some discrepancies in the uh, schematics and things like that that really kind of give you a pause. And that could be nothing more than, you know, one person that built it, another person that had an, a basic idea and wrote the schematics. So I'm guessing, though, that if we're going to be using this our Dead of Winter event uh, coming up February 26th, that this version that you've built is not going to take up an entire room. No. <laughs> <laughs> No, but even building this in the 70s wouldn't have taken up an entire room. Um, you know, you could have you could have built a small crystal oscillator system. Um, you know, things were bigger back then, yes, but certainly should have fit on a desktop. And and how about what's the size of yours now that, that you've created? Well, these are just really off-the-shelf components. Like when Jeff and I were talking about this, my idea was not trying to recreate this as a specialty device, but just make something I can show everybody. You, you put these components together, you plug them together, and you're actually recreating, you know, as far as component-wise, the Spiritcom. The idea was to try and get some more people in and start playing with this and see if somebody can uh, actually come up with the actual answers by experimentation. But, no, the one I have right now, if I was to really put all the components into a single case, maybe a 3x5 box. Now, Jeff, I know I've... I've 
been investigations with you where we've used different uh, supposed ITC devices, and you you don't really pay a lot of attention to them. Uh, but this one definitely seems to have piqued your curiosity uh, more so than any that I've seen. Is it because it's a new approach, and you you know your eyes and ears don't just gloss over as they have with a lot of the muffled noise that we've been trying to make things out of in the past? What I like about Spiricom is that um, it's more controlled. And what what Bill and you know when Bill and I started talking about this, uh, gosh, we were back on the Queen Mary uh, a while ago, um, talking about it. You could arguably uh, m- measure and monitor every stage of the process. So you know the the tones are being generated from software on a laptop. So those are precise. You know that's there's, there's no confusion there. They're then being broadcast at a specific frequency. But you could hook up an oscillator or any number of other devices to each each component of this this machine and see where it's being altered. You know you could say, well, the tones are the tones. Uh, well, okay, the transmission is the transmission. Ooh, the reception is different. Than the transmission, so something happened in, you know, the the, the ten inches between those two antennas um, that that has altered this. And if it's intelligible and interactive, that's really interesting. The reason shack hacks bother me so much is that, you know, first of all, you you you've got many many snippets of human voices, and sometimes you can get whole words in in those brief seconds that uh, you know brief you know fractions of seconds that the words go by. That, that might make some sense in some context, but it's always just a snippet. This, and if you listen, you know, you've, you've played those recordings already tonight. I mean, this is amazing. We're talking about, can you hear me? Yes, Jeff, I can hear you. You're sitting in a green chair right now. I mean, that's, that, no shack hacks say that, you know? Um, and so, so this is, uh, this is just more precise and, and interesting to me than, than a lot of the other, uh, stuff that's coming out. And, and things like, um, you know, uh, even talking to K2 meters, which is still ITC, by the way. I mean, you're practicing instrumental transcommunication with a K2 meter, saying if you're here, make these lights light up once for yes, twice for no. And really, all of this is not all that different from a Ouija board. It's just, you know, some people put more stock in talking to a K2 meter or an audio recorder or, you know, now maybe Spiricom. Um, and, and all of it is interesting, not just the technology, not just what what the possibilities are, but, I mean, the psychology behind it, the reason we do this, why people, some people will be drawn to it, uh, and if it works for some people and not others, all of that just fascinates me, and I just, I really just want to jump into this pond in a big way. Well, one thing that I think needs to happen is there needs to be a, if there is a dialogue that can take place, if there can be two-way communication through this new Spiritcom device, we need to talk about things of a little bit more important ilk than what uh, Doc Mueller and Bill O'Neill talked about, at least in the clips that have been released to the public, because, uh, Basically, if you play any of these original Spiritcom clips, and uh, it's the most mundane conversation that you'll ever hear. There's one here that, uh, Matt, I want to play this one only because it gives people an idea of what uh, what kind of discussion went back and forth. But play Garden Talk. And uh, this is not to be confused with the Garden Guys, who I believe will be on WBSM tomorrow morning. So let's play this one. Yeah, I just uh, turned on the tape recorder, Doctor. Oh, very well, William.
You can stop it now, man. That's, that's enough. So here you have the possibility of having all the great mysteries of life solved for you when you're talking about carrots and fried cabbage. Yeah, no, and a lot of their conversations, you're right. Some of the other ones were, you know, and this is, you know, this is something I believe we left out earlier, and I apologize. You know, allegedly the the Doc Mueller, the the spirit of of, of Doctor Mueller on the other side, had a lot of input into how the machine should work and and what needed to be tweaked and developed. So you hear a lot of their discussions, and there's other audio files. You can hear a lot of these on WorldITC.org. Um, where where you you know he's saying you you got to adjust the preamp or whatever oh okay the preamp you know so they're working on the machine which makes sense I mean if if you know assuming two people are just starting to establish communication you'd want to do whatever you could to make that communication strong before you moved on to deeper dialogue but you're right um, there wasn't a whole lot of um, you know a deep discussion and yet the meta science foundation published quite a bit of detail as to you know the various levels of uh you know where spirits dwell on the other side i mean they they had uh you know great theories yeah, as, but, as to what's over there but a lot of that information allegedly came from bill o'neill having private channeling sessions right. with doc Mueller in his own home and not through the spiritcom device absolutely correct so no recorded proof of those discussions actually taking place that's right and they claim but they also claim validated by other psychics. they worked with psychics this is a this group was very interesting you know uh George Meek, an eccentric, wealthy man, traveled the world talking to shaman and healers and psychics and yogis and all kinds of other interesting people, bringing together people of science, bringing together psychics. He had a vision, and, and he really believed, you know, uh, that, that this we, we were on the cusp of something huge, something really amazing. And, and uh, right in the beginning of their manual, uh, when he quotes, you know, boy, the Wright brothers... Uh, when they first flew their airplane, it, it only flew for a few seconds in a, in a span of, you know, a hundred some odd feet before it crashed. And it was a long time, it was months before they could get an airplane flying again for, for everyone to see. And, uh, and, and that's the analogy he uses. Well, okay, our Spiritcom machine doesn't work anymore. And, and keep in mind, by the way, Bill O'Neill was still alive when the machine stopped working. So it wasn't that Bill O'Neill died and now this machine doesn't work anymore. Bill O'Neill was still alive when the machine you know, stopped being able to communicate. And one theory is that there was this, this resonance that, that occurred between the, the living people at MetaScience and the spirit people on the other side, these two teams working together. It just, it just broke. They just couldn't keep that energy up. Um, that's, you know, that's one theory. That's what they, they claim happened. Um, or, you know, or maybe people were, were trying to pay too much attention. I heard one, you know, one remark that if you, if you see a lot of photos of Bill O'Neill using Spiricom, it's always from behind. You always see his back, not his face. Um, you know, which means, was he moving his lips? Was he talking through a larynx to make this stuff happen? I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, like I said, I'm, I'm really interested in finding the original machine, if it's still out there. I'm told it is, and I have some leads, and I'm working on it. Um, you know, I, I want to see if it's still out there. Can you still plug it in? Does it still work? Is anyone 
claiming quietly, privately, or otherwise that, you know, hey, it does still work and I've used it for spirit communication, or, um, you know, and, and as Bill said, he's not the only one that's that's reproduced this um, this device. The schematics are out there on the Internet. You can you can Google and find them pretty quickly. Other people have, have built component-based Spiritcoms as well, and, and some of them, some of those folks are claiming to get uh, get results. So let's see what happens. I mean, this is, this is kind of like a, a brave new... Uh, part of paranormal research and, and ITC uh, research, but, but I, what I love about Bill's approach is that it's all on the table. It's open. Here, here's, here's how I built it. You can get a lot of this stuff at Radio Shack. You can tweak it yourself. You can change it. Let's see. You know, let's see. So there's, there's, no, there's no magic box here. Let's, uh, let's see what combination can, can get results. And Bill, you sent us some clips uh, of, your, of your device in action, and you can hear a much different a uh, much different sound to it. You don't right. have that, you know, electric razor buzzing that you have with the original device. Well, that's one of the issues that it's got. Now, I recreated the tones. Uh, what I did is I gave you four different examples. Mm-hmm. Uh, within the documentation, we're assuming with Chris Lossler that they're probably producing a sine wave, but it could be, you know, it, all you have is a block diagram. We really don't know what filtering was taking place. So I reproduced the tones as a square wave, ramp wave, uh, you know, also a sine wave, um, just so and then also a sawtooth, because I really didn't know exactly, you know, how their oscillator is going to function. But in all four of those instances, recreating the same mix of the same tones, I don't get a bass frequency that sounds anything close to the, and I'm going to just say electrical razor type of sound that's so predominant on the Spiritcom tapes. That gives me a lot of pause up front. Um, I would have expected to have been able to come much closer. Why don't we just play one of those, Matt, if you want to just pick one of those from your uh, list there. And, and you can hear definitely that clear difference, and it does raise a lot of suspicion in my mind as well. So let's play that one. So you can hear there. You don't you don't have that buzz that's you know signature to the electrolarynx or to the Frampton talk box. Um, so <laughs> you know it sounds to me like first of all we'll be able to if anything does come through it'll be a lot more clearer I would assume. Well, possibly hard to say. I think you know there's so many unknowns. With uh, we're we're reading a very limited document. We don't know how precisely they were tuning this thing. Were they going? Off frequency, like literally trying to filter for a sideband on the amplitude modulated uh, signal they were sending out. We, we really don't know what they were up to. I mean, there there's so many parts of this that are really missing. We're getting a, you know, a five mile up look at this machine. Um, you know, and that's that's one of the things that's, that's kind of frustrating as you go back to this old documentation is that it, it's very incomplete. But yeah, I, I think it's a much smoother set of tones. If you're able to get modulation with it, um, it should sound much more like human speech. If anybody has any questions and they want to call in, the number is one eight seven seven nine nine six fourteen twenty or five zero eight nine nine six zero five hundred. You can also email Spooky Crew at SpookySouthCoast.com or jump in the chat room on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com, or you could use whatever ITC device you choose to use. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to call in with a Ouija board. You know, if uh, if I had my Ouija board here to receive it, that might work. But I don't uh, know if it would work otherwise. That's too bad. So this is just going to be a wasted question on my my Ouija board. That's a shame. But uh, well, the good thing though is uh, if this if 
if we are going to try this out somewhere, we've picked a good place to really try it out uh, with the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast because those who have brought ITC devices there have had a lot of success. Yeah, and, and what's cool, too, is um, uh, Bill Chapel will be there in spirit, and uh, I'm hoping, Bill, that you could uh, jump in on Skype when we're at the Lizzie House sure. running this thing so uh, so the folks there will be able to see and talk to Bill for a few minutes while um, – while we have it set up and running, and my thought was, we're just, let's just let this baby cook. Let's let's let it run all night. Let's let different people interact with it. Um, you know, see see if someone can get results. Because and and let's throw this out there. I don't think we've said this formally yet. And, and Bill, uh, please clarify if I'm wrong. Uh, Bill, you have not received any sort of communication with it yet. Correct? It's just that is correct. Okay. So, so uh, <laughs> no one, we're not selling anyone a, a weird bill of goods here, right? <laughs> Bill's recreated it, and no one has made any contact using this device yet. Let's just be upfront and honest about the whole thing. No, other than standard broadcast signals, that's the only voices I've uh, actually gone through. Right and, and, and like I say, quite honestly, my intent wasn't to uh, to get Spiritcom running to be able to receive those messages. You know, like I say, I'm more interested in the method that's taking place, and I'm always looking for that key. I believe that ITC really does take place. I believe that people do get ITC communication, but I, I think the, the speculation on how it occurs is one of the problems we've got to overcome in the paranormal field, and it's, it's time to really start tearing apart devices like this and spending the time to understand where and how these things are actually occurring. That's when it'll really get exciting. Is when we make that type of breakthrough, right? And 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 one of the you know one possibility that's that's so interesting is that what if living people are affecting these devices, like literally imprinting words and speech into them, uh, even even uh, into audio recorders? What if that would explain EVP? Still an amazing thing. I mean, a miracle. That that's still an incredible uh, you know phenomenon worth studying. That, that what, what if these are powers of our, our living minds that are doing this? Um, I still want to know. I want to yeah. know more. In the first hour, we talked with Michael Clarkson about poltergeists, and even if it turns out there are humans that are causing that particular problem, it's still pretty fascinating that they can actually do that, whether or not they're consciously aware of it. Uh, here's, here's a question uh, for you, Bill, from the chat room. Uh, this yes. person wants to know uh, about a Skype-like system as a communication device, or if it has to be standard FMAF frequencies, but you've actually instituted something uh, over Skype, haven't you? Yeah, I've had a system. Actually, it'll start into its uh, third year of operation next week. Um, it's on Skype. You just go in and, and type in crossover talk on Skype. Uh, and to answer the caller's question, yeah, it, it's it's the same concept, except for we're not transmitting anything. Um, it's inductive magnetism. Uh, very low frequency that, that triggers this thing under about 500 hertz. So, you know, that's, I'm glad they brought the question up because from my opinion, I don't think a transmitter or a receiver is really the key of what we're playing with here. Uh, I think people get things with these type of measures, but I don't believe the actual communication is a transmitted medium. It's not a signal coming from the other side, not, not in the way we would perceive one with present day Technology. And I did notice uh, from your site, too, that uh, it looks like your future plans involve taking a step back away from the hardware and working more on software. You know, I go, I go hot and cold with that. I, I am an engineer, and I love to build hardware. But, you know, digital dowsing is one person, and I work completely by myself. And, 
So, uh, you know, I, I've become quite a manic depressive over the last couple of years. And depending on when you talk to me, I'll be ready to shelf everything or ready to delve back in. But, yeah, I'm spending a lot more time on software lately just because um, it's, it's, it's a faster fix. I can change things quicker than actually building up a new circuit and testing and, and developing. And not, not that it should really matter in terms of your development and design, but also then you're putting the software into people's computers, and it's their own hardware that they already know, that they're already familiar with, that they've already put trust into. So you, you can eliminate a lot of the original skepticism about the device and get to actually what the results are. Correct. All right. Well, Jeff, uh, I'm pretty excited to use this at, uh, at Dead of Winter. There's only eight tickets left. Do I have to buy one? Uh, I think you should. It's the least you can do. Okay. Well, then uh, I'm going to have to take up a collection. But, uh, you know, there is. There was only about uh, eight. Is that That's what I last heard was eight. Is that Excellent. Right? Well, good. Well, it's still a few weeks left. Uh, and what what better Valentine present than uh, going to the Lizzie Borden house with uh, guys like us and looking for ghosts all night? And the tickets are only 125 They include a meal prepared for you by the Spooky Crew. We'll make sure that Moniz doesn't get involved in that stuff, though, because... You know, clean hands or happy hands. And uh, <laughs> we'll also have uh, a live broadcast of the show. We're going to have uh, a discussion with Jeff. And, of course, we'll, as we said, we'll connect with Bill Chapel via Skype. And uh, Leanne will be on hand to talk about the Borden case. And basically, you're going to have the run of the house until 2 a.m. to investigate however you see fit. But the new Spirit Common device will be there as well. Uh, we'll also bring some other toys along with us. And uh, I know Matt Koss is probably going to have a few things that he's working on. And I know uh, Linda Lynch is coming, and she's bringing some of her stuff. So it should be a, a great night and a lot of different opportunities for people to experience the paranormal, both in the traditional sense and with uh, the more modern technology. Uh, Jeff, the one, the one thing that I do ask is that uh, when we do use this, if, uh, you know, if Doc Mueller should happen to come through, can we talk to him about something a little bit more in-depth than just whether or not he likes cabbage? Actually, I'm looking forward to talking to him about uh, gardening and, and other tips. That's where I need the most help. <laughs> well, there you go. All right. Well, that'll be uh, coming up on February 26th. Again, tickets are $125. There's only a few of them left, so act now. The rooms are all booked up, but uh, I was speaking with a few uh, area hotels, and they do have rooms. There's an Econo Lodge and a Quality Inn, uh, both in Fall River, with very, very affordable rates. Uh, for that night. So if you act now, you should be able to get a chance to stay over. But hey, you're going to be so wired, you'll be able to drive home. Uh, I guarantee it. So, uh, Jeff, I look forward to seeing you then. Bill, look forward to talking with you over Skype that night, if not before. And uh, thank you for putting in the effort for all the different uh, work that you do uh, toward making the paranormal a little bit more scientific in some people's eyes. Well, thank you. And I'll look forward to uh, talking to you guys when you're at the Lizzie Ford. All right, sounds good. So until next week, uh, when we'll be talking with Kathleen Brunel, a local author, uh, who will talk with us about her book Bellamy's Bride and about the pirate Bellamy and some of the ghostly stories that are associated with it. Uh, until then, for Matt Costa, for Matt Moniz, for Chris Balzano, I'm Tim Weisberg, and we want you all to stay spooktacular. Rest assured, listener, that my time here has not been easy, and what you have just heard was not fiction. Although, in many a desperate moment, I most certainly wish it had been. It's over for now, it seems. Or at least, until yesterday begins again. Tomorrow, 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 tomorrow.
another supernaturalist, something that is...